A Call Confessions is brought to you commercial free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. It's important to me that today's exploration of neo-Nazi occultism not be an advertisement for these organizations. If a person is inclined to the racial separatist or supremacist beliefs these groups hold, there's really nothing I can do to change their mind, but I want to foreground this conversation for those who might be open to these ideas with some reasons why neo-Nazi occultism doesn't make very much sense. To accept these ideas, we have to entertain the possibility that God plays favorites, or that different racial groups have their own gods who are only concerned with the members of that race. The idea that God plays favorites is not a new one. If you say your group is the favorite, though, because of some ancient text or special prophetic revelation, I can find my own text or prophet to say the same thing about my group, and the whole thing just sort of washes out. If you appeal to evidence in world events, there's no group that's been able to maintain dominance, suggesting the groups fall in and out of favor with God. In the 19th century, for example, the sun never set on the British Empire, but now it's just an island loosely affiliated with some other islands. Also Canada. So, does God favor the British? Or does he not favor the British? Perhaps the white race has angered God by mixing with the other races, and now God loves the Chinese. But if that were the case, shouldn't God have blessed the supremacists and separatists with some kind of, I don't know, world dominance by now, and counted out those whites who have married Asians, Africans, and Native Americans? I'm more friendly to the notion that different groups have their own gods who love them best, But this is only a healthy ideology if it embraces a live-and-let-live philosophy. If my gods tell me to destroy you because you're inherently evil, this is a dangerous game. Your holy books and your gods could just as easily be telling you that I'm inherently evil. If we go to the question of evidence again, we have to ask what your group or mine has done that shows we're evil. Certainly killing off a rival with no evidence of wrongdoing would be a sign that I'm kind of evil. So best not to get, get best to, to not bother getting into that kind of theology in the first place. Yeah, now that we've settled that, the neo-Nazi occult. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, joined this day by our metallurgic prophet, Brie Literal. Hey, guys. Brie was here for the Nazis the first round, and now she's here for them neo-Nazis. I'm already upset. <laughs> so we need to we need to keep lively today. We need to to, to keep keep from getting too bogged down and depressed. Uh, and here to help us do that is Nikki Double H Hiller Henderson, our naked truth. Hello, I'm ready to get angry. Yeah, but in a lively way, in an entertaining fashion. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's pledge it out. We the members of the secret order of Al Akmal actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, Nikki, I'm going to put it on you to make some sounds to open up that order of confessors. Oh, that's sort of celebratory. Yeah. All right, we want to welcome Mary G, Ella E, and Gab Quarius. Do, 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 do. Also a pledge bump from Kaylee. Thank you. Reminder to everyone out there that 
we are a commercial-free enterprise, and we intend to stay that way. Uh, I was having a lovely conversation on our Discord with some of our listeners. reminded me that uh, part of the motivation for our patrons, many of our patrons, is to allow us to continue to do this work commercial-free. Uh, certainly, folks have approached us to do commercials, and uh, for the most part... Actually, I can't say for the most part. I have never... <laughs> <laughs> I have never said yes. <laughs> I've thought about it. I'm not going to kid you. I've thought about it. Um, but ultimately, it's uh, just smarter for us and, and for the tone of the show to stick with what we're at. And that depends, depends on our patrons. Uh, so please consider becoming one of our sustaining members by joining us on Patreon. Yeah, all right. Let's uh, close that on up, Nikki. Still, still in the celebration. We continue to celebrate. The celebration proceeds. Yeah. Up until this very moment, because yeah, it's gonna get real sad, <laughs> real fast. It's time to do that heavy lifting, uh, and and we're gonna do the best we can here, guys, listeners, confessors, to to be sensitive about this topic. It is a difficult topic. The Nazis were a difficult topic. I find this to be even more difficult because it gets closer to us, closer to home. Uh, and we're talking about not just Nazis and their flirtation with occultism. Now we're talking about people who are, you know, pretty much in our house. These are occulty folks. These are folks who share many beliefs with many of our confessors out there um, with one great big asterisk. So, let's get started. Emphasis on the ass part. <laughs> I knew you were, I had a feeling you were going to... Yes. Asterisk. Thank you. <laughs> Let us begin with Savitri Devi. Arguably, the most significant figure in esoteric Hitlerism. That, again, is esoteric Hitlerism also known as the transformation of Nazi ideology into a kind of occult religion, is Savitri Devi. She was born Maximiani Portas. That's right. Okay. Maximiani Portas. Because Savitri Devi was a Greek girl. Born in Lyon on the 30th of September, 1905. I'm already confused. Yes. Yeah, born in lost. Europe of Greek heritage uh-huh. Went by the name Savitri Devi. It's going to take us a little while to wind around to the explanation here, but uh, I okay. promise you that it's coming. She studied philosophy at the University of Lyon, where she earned her PhD. In Greece, she studied ancient ruins and learned that swastikas had been uncovered in Anatolia, the peninsula including Turkey, and concluded that her Greek ancestors were originally Aryan or Indian. Now, I've, I think I've said this before on the show, but it's worth bringing it up again here. The word Aryan, for those of you who have not studied the Nazis, is a significant term for Hitler. Because Hitler believed that the master race were the Aryans. However, historically, the Aryans were Indian. They were a tribe that descended into India from the north to conquer the subcontinent thousands of years ago. They spoke oh. Sanskrit... Yeah, fun fact. I didn't know that. 
They spoke Sanskrit and they worshipped the Vedic gods and they converted India to their Brahmanic belief system. They essentially introduced Brahmanism and much of contemporary Indian religion to, to the region. These are important points for us to hold in our minds to make sense of the brand of Nazism Savitri Devi devoted herself to. Already the name should be starting to make more sense. Yeah. She renounced her French citizenship. Remember, she was born in Lyon. She became Greek as a citizen, which is fine. That was her, um, I guess, birthright. And then on a pilgrimage to Palestine, she became a Nazi. She spent, (laughs) of course, where else but Palestine? I I guess. She, She spent three years traveling India before settling at an ashram in Bengal for six months. She took a job teaching English at Gerondon College outside of Delhi and adopted the Hindu name Savitri Devi. All right. So far, so good? Okay. Yep. Yep. I understand so far, if that's what you mean. Insofar as you're able to, yeah, I I get it, I get it. At a Hindu mission in Calcutta in 1936, she met Srimat Swami Satyananda, who taught her that Hitler was an incarnation of Vishnu. This is incredibly important to putting all these pieces together. I'm going to say that one more time. Satyananda taught her that Hitler was an incarnation of Vishnu. This begins to link together the Indian Aryan and the Hitlerian Aryan. (laughs) I'm not trying to coin that. Please don't anyone else use that. Sorry, I just hit my phone on my microphone because my mother is yelling and I was trying to tell her I was recording. (laughs) Is everything okay in your house? Yeah, no, she just tries to alert me when she's coming in. So like, I don't think she's an intruder and like stab her or something. (laughs) How many intruders have you stabbed? None yet, but I'm in the mindset where I'm a fighter, not a flighter. So, so uh, could and my mom's always like, well, just yell out. And I'm like, well, no, because I'm not going to yell out to an intruder and then get stabbed myself. I'll just, you just stab them. Are we keeping this? Is this, is this in the episode? I, it's hard for, it, it's going to be hard for me not to keep this. Yeah. You can. I. You've got my permission. <laughs> Back She's to like, just let it be known. If you're an intruder. I'll stab You're gonna get stabbed. I have multiple weapons at my disposal just in case somebody is in the house. In contrast to Bree, who is a destroyer, Vishnu was a preserver. <laughs> Vishnu is in fact one of the trinity at the heart of Hinduism, regarded as the preserver alongside Brahma, who was the creator, and Shiva, more Bree's people, the destroyer. It's accurate. Shiva's also the ascetic who who retires from the world and meditates. In his role as preserver, Vishnu appears on Earth in the form of various avatars. The earliest major incarnation, Matsya, was a giant fish responsible for saving humanity from a great flood. Other incarnations include Rama, Krishna, and Buddha. Vishnu's final incarnation in this cycle of creation will be Kalki, Uh, who will arrive on a white horse during the Kali Yuga or final and most corrupt era to remove discord and disharmony and restart the cycle of time. I love in all that the like echoes of Western traditions, the white horse at the end of time makes me think of the horsemen of the apocalypse and Mm -hmm. the great flood and giant fish are definitely biblical themes. We think about Jonah and Noah. Definitely. Uh, Yeah. So, and that's sort of also the beauty of Hinduism um, it can also be like it's 
I'm saying beauty because I kind of respect I respect the game, I guess, but it can be a little um, appropriation-y, I guess. So what they do is, with the Buddha, they'll say, oh yeah, the Buddha's part of Hinduism, the Buddha was Vishnu. And they did this a lot. I mean, this was basically the the way the Aryans functioned, give or take. They, they When they came into the region, they basically sucked up all the gods of India into their religion. They just relabeled them as avatars of their own Vedic gods or part of the pantheon of the Vedic gods. So it's better than it's better than what we see in the West where Christians march in and put a gun to your a knife to your throat and say, okay, you're Christian now or else. So there's that. There's that. <laughs> yeah, you it get is to keep better than I guess the threat of death or convert. Yeah, you can pretty much keep your religion. They just they sort of meld it with their philosophy. It's a little bit like what a like Christianity taking pagan dates and symbols and being like, well, we're just gonna put our fun own fun little spin on that. Yeah, that's true. And it's ours now. That's true. It also makes me think of like with like um like in like Haiti and and like I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to say. Voodoo and Santeria, the Saint. Thank you, Santeria. Yeah. I was like, what is the other one called? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> For some Cuba. reason I was blanking. Um, but like those countries, that those are like their more traditional beliefs. And instead of, you know, converting to the Catholics, they just kind of turned them around yeah, secretly and, and sneakily. In, in that case, I, th- the, I think they would not have been happy to learn of the extent to which that had been done. But I think, mm-hmm. Nikki, you're right to point out that the Christians, Pope Gregory and all them, they were trying to, they were trying to, they weren't happy to allow paganism to persist, but they also created a situation where it definitely could. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a similarity there. I'm okay with that. Where were we? Kalki. Uh, so uh, Devi, Savitri Devi, remember her, uh, she came to believe that Hitler, as an incarnation of Vishnu, was not actually Kalki, the final incarnation of Vishnu on the white horse. However, she believed that he was paving the way for Kalki's arrival. So there was going to be a Hitler 2.0. Oh, no. That's the worst sentence I've ever heard you say. Sorry. Oh, no. Although we should all be vigilant and make sure that we keep our eyes out for Hitler 2.0. Let's learn from history. Right. Savitri Devi's warning us. For once, we could learn from history just once. <sighs> Around this time, Devi met her husband, Ajit Krishna Mukherjee, the editor of The New Mercury, a publication through which he argued for a pan-Aryan alliance between India and the Nazis. Because again, everybody's an Aryan. Oh. Leaving aside Hitler's fascist extermination of the Aryans' perceived enemies, this made a certain kind of sense, as I'm saying. The Germans were opposed to the French and the British, who were responsible, by the way, for India's colonization. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, this is kind of smart stuff. I gotta respect that's, some of what he's saying point. here. No, that's a good point. For Mukherjee and ultimately Devi, a partnership was based on much more, though, than the principle that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. For Devi and Mukherjee, high caste Indians and German Aryans were of the same race and had a mutual right to world domination. I mean, I, I got a harsh on India a second here. Remember the caste system. Hitler was racist. 
Yeah, that's... India mm-hmm. already sort of has a baked-in kind of racism or yeah. casteism. So there is a master race in India, and it's the top tier of the caste system. So again, there's points of, of connection here. Devi and Mukherjee did not have a romantic relationship, but they married to keep Devi from being expelled from the country by the British. At parties for Allied personnel that the French-Greek Devi hosted with her husband, she gathered intelligence that she passed on to the Axis powers. So you see she's having the British colonial powers come over to her house, and then she's like, hey, Nazis. Guess what I heard? Over punch. Oh my goodness. Cocktail weenies. Interestingly, her ideology caused a rift with her mother, who gathered intelligence for the French resistance during the war. Oof. Talk about family drama. Yeah, I thought I had family drama, but whoa. No, mom was. Honestly. (laughs) Mom was actively fighting for the Allies while her daughter was having cocktail weenies with the British and spying for the, the Germans. Oh my god. After the war in 1948, she boarded the Nord Express from Denmark to Germany, carrying thousands of handwritten leaflets. Let me say that again. Thousands of handwritten leaflets urging the Germans to resist the democracies who had defeated them and await the return of a power unheard of. She signed the leaflets with a heil to Hitler. Oh my god. Oh, there it is. So an occupied country, occupied Germany, occupied by the Soviets and and by the United States and the Allied powers. She's just walking around handing out Hitler propaganda. Oh my god. I don't think that's very um smart. She's got gut. Okay, let me tell you she's got gut. Yeah. She's got something. I don't It's Hitler 2.0 propaganda by the way cuz the power unheard of would be Hitler 2.0. Oh. Every time you say Hitler 2.0, I mean, it kind of takes a chunk out of my soul when you say shudder. that. She was finally arrested for promoting Nazi ideas on German territory, which the Allies considered to be illegal. The maximum penalty for this crime, by the way, was death. But she was sentenced to two years in prison. That seems drastically different from yeah, death. Okay. I wonder if there was. I don't. I'm gonna say misogyny here, but that's not exactly the word I mean. I think sex is of some kind. It's benefiting her because they're like, oh, this is just we a silly a lady. This she silly probably woman didn't know what she was doing. She can't even read. There may be. She, <laughs> she can't even read. She couldn't have written those. Women here comes can't that read. feminist satire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will say, Mickey, though, not just her sex, but maybe the occulty nature of what she was saying also made them look down their noses at her and say oh she's harmless she's just nuts she believes in spirits and ghosts and stuff so she's looked past because she's a woman and also because of her ideas yeah she seems like a double whammy yeah she's like a crazy medium going around telling you about dead people who wants you to know that Hitler loves you oh my what a (laughs) message to receive from a stranger can you imagine Take that scenario over what she's actually doing, though. <laughs> Seems a lot. Her walking up to people like the Long Island medium and saying, hey. Um, oh, my God. You're never going to believe this. <laughs> but Hitler loves you. Your second cousin <laughs> like, is here and not. wants you to know. 
<laughs> you remember your second cousin? She died of that allergy attack. Yeah, she yeah. wants you to know. Hitler's your your biggest fan. <laughs> I hate it, but that seems like so much less scary than right. what she's actually doing. It's like yeah. the kids' book version of what she's doing. So, but now here's what happened. They put her in prison for two years, and what she did was she went around making friends with all the Nazi ladies in oh prison. Oh my god. <laughs> Well, of course. And she like rallied them. They were like, no. She was like, you shouldn't be in jail. You are not oppressed. You are the ones who have the true message. You know, you have the truth. Oh, no. So they so they, they finally put her in solitary confinement. <laughs> Oh my god. Isolated her anyway from the political prisoners. They just cut her off from anyone associated with the Nazis because she was so busy trying to rally them. She said you shouldn't be oppressed. You should be oppressing. I hate oh. that. Basically, yeah. Basically, That's I mean, literally I'm what she was doing. Yeah. Uh, anyhow. Oh. So, after her release, she returned to Germany in 1953 as a pilgrim to major Nazi sites. She ended at the Sun Temple at the Rock Cliffs of Externstein, where she performed rituals to speed the coming of the next age, Hitler 2.0, and experienced a spiritual rebirth, Debbie 2.0. After spending a night in a stone tomb, she emerged shouting the names of Vedic gods, and Hitler. I'm sure that was a I, scene for anyone <laughs> Yeah, like, if you just took Hitler out of this, we would probably say, okay, that was a nice spiritual revelation. This sounds okay, right? She's but, just a supportive witchy lady. Yeah. yeah. But Without she, Hitler. Yes, if you just can get the Hitler out of this whole deal. Devi first published her views on Hitler, Hinduism, and occultism in 1962 with George Lincoln Rockwell's fascist magazine, National Socialist World. Rockwell was so impressed with Devi, he gave her, uh, her, her book, Lightning in the Sun, Pride of Place, in his publication. So there it is. So Rockwell's largely responsible, and Rockwell's someone we will get to again when we talk about clan Christianity later this year. George Lincoln Rockwell, remember that name. Debbie drew on pop, a popular, and he's an American, so it's the Americans, ultimately, American neo-Nazis who are largely responsible for, I'm going to say, turning Debbie into a person who I'm talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Up till this moment, she's just a random lady crazily wandering around Europe, getting thrown in jail. Until right. until 1962, then she becomes this inspirational um, ideologue promoting an idea that's going to take on a life of its own. I say inspirational, I mean for the worst people inspiration. Yes. Debbie drew on a popular 19th century ideology based on the view that the world's greatest cultural achievements could be traced to a single racial stock, which had its roots in India. Friedrich Schlegel called this Indic Nordic, Indic Nordic, Indo Nordic, Indic Nordic master race, the Aryans. So it's Schlegel who pulls them all together theoretically. Although, as it turns out, only the Indic part of that concept was accurate, since Aryans had nothing to do with the Nordic people. Am I right, Brie? Yes. Right. No Vikings from India. Keep the Vikings out of it. (laughs) Keep the Vikings in the icy cold, where they belong. Yes. (laughs) Following Schlegel, 
Christian Lassen expanded on this by unfavorably contrasting the Semitic or Jewish race with this Indic Nordic Aryan race. The Jews, he said, were more self-centered and exclusive and the Aryan than the Aryans, and so they were inferior. See, see what I mean? The Aryans are, I guess, more what, what was this? Self-centered and exclusive. So the Indians are more uh, giving and uh, communal. Indian nationalist Bal Gangadhar Tilak's The Arctic Home in the Vedas, that's The Arctic Home in the Vedas, this book argued that the Aryan race had lived in the Arctic over 10,000 years ago. Uh, that's the North Pole, for those of you trying to place in your head the difference between Arctic and Antarctic. Which Aryans? The, the, these Aryans, the Indic Nordic Aryans. So the Viking Indians. Okay. They they originally lived in the North Pole. Of course they did. Over 10,000 years ago. Do you know the native food of, of the North Pole is bananas? Cold bananas. Hmm. There's no way. Now, I, I flew to China one time, and uh, you, you, I took a, this particular flight went over the North Pole. And as we were flying over the North, North Pole, they handed out cold bananas. I'm delighted by that, actually. <laughs> that just sounds like something you threw into, like, to, like... Like you were you were kidding. No, 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 that's for real. I mean, I, I mean, at least uh, whoever I was flying with believed that, that was the. I mean, because there's no nothing there at the North Pole, so you know it's whatever they hand you on the flight. That's your that's your native food right there, and it's cold that bananas. Brings me joy, Rob. It wasn't a warm banana. It was cold. It had I'm been glad. chilled. It kind of seems more like a dessert when it's cold for some reason to me. It's the Arctic, after all. We're gonna have a banana when we're done with this. Okay, so. Uh, <laughs> Where were we? Oh, yeah, the Arctic. So the Aryan race had lived in the Arctic 10,000 years ago. Uh, Back then, the climate, by the way, was temperate. So it was nice and mild. Between 10,000 and 8,000 BCE, though, the Ice Age destroyed the Aryans' Arctic home, forcing those who didn't freeze to flee south. For the next... So you think it's warm in Canada right now, Nikki? Imagine back when they were... uh, The North Pole was, was temperate. It'd be balmy there, like the Bahamas. I think we were swampland. Back in the day? Yeah. Uh, So, for the next 3,000 years after the Ice Age, the Aryans sought a new home. The Orion period began around the year 5000 BCE when they composed the early Vedas, which still reflected a memory of their ancestral home, knowledge, and philosophy. The Arctic past has since been forgotten and the echoes of its culture diluted by the passage of time. But you can apparently still read this stuff in the Vedas. And I, that, that's where Tilak is, is attempting to craft this idea. Just like, you know, people read weird stuff in the Bible, you know, like aliens and stuff. I was going to say, so like this is his, like one person's idea, not like a... Yeah, for the most part, yeah. I okay. mean... Uh, we can get into Hitler like we did in the Nazi episode. Remember, the, there's that ice age, the ice planet myth and all this that right. Hitler was involved in. So there's there's this weird relationship between ice and Hitlerism and and occultism. Um, so I, I'm not going to say that this is just like floating off on its own. It definitely has ties to occult Nazi ideas that predate it. But other than that it's it's just reading into the vedas things that aren't there okay as far as i know i mean who knows maybe the indians did come from the north pole what the hell do i know but it seems highly unlikely 
This mythic ancient race is what Devi came to regard as the true ancient pure-blooded Aryans. The Aryans had, of course, come across a great many different races of people as they conquered their way toward the Punjab, but they had managed to maintain their racial purity, the racial purity that is of the Brahmin class, through strict adherence to their caste system. The Hinduism taught by this class of priests was the last true reflection of the ancient pagan religion practiced by the Arctic Aryans. So it's their racism, she says, <laughs> that has the longest lineage. Oh, um, their classism. Cool. Yeah, neat, nifty. For Devi, Hitler was a man against time, capital man, capital time, capital against, uh, and the greatest of this particular species of men. The men in time, so there's there's three kinds of man. There's the man against time, the man in time, and the man above time. So let's talk about the difference between these men's. Please. The men in time typify their age. So you, you act according to the time period. In the Kali Yuga, the last age, this means they are violent and power-driven. Oh. So we know a few men like that. Yeah. In the in the public sphere. The men above time were wise sages operating operating outside of the exigencies of their age. Sort of like me. <laughs> yes, Rob. <laughs> I think if I had to be a man, this would probably be the man I if most If you had to be a man? most identified with. I don't have to be Nikki, I don't have to be anything. Oh no. I, I just know. have to be me. Oh, <laughs> you said it. The man, the man against time is both. He's both in time and above time. He sees above and beyond, but he's also, in the Kali Yuga, an agent of destruction. You see, so he's, like, he's got the wisdom of a, of a Rob, for example, paired with the violence of a fill-in-a-politician's-name-who-you-hate. Hitler's vast genocide was an attempt to establish a global Aryan caste system in service of ushering in a new age of perfection. Devi read Hitler through the lens of his vision of an Aryan utopia and accepted the Holocaust as an essential step on the road to this end. But there is a rage burning inside of me <laughs> right now. If you could see the face that I am making, <laughs> it's a dark philosophy. It is a, a dark. I I didn't. I mean, I I didn't kid you guys at the top. I wasn't like this is going to be light and enjoyable. The the sentence the holo the Holocaust was an essential step should never yeah, be uttered. No, outside of this episode, right? Oh, because it yes, it, I, I think that post-Holocaust you know like the, let's just think about this for a second the Nazis some of them were either unaware that it was happening or they told themselves all kinds of tales about what it actually was post-World War II we knew in graphic detail exactly what all this was mm-hmm. and it seems pretty damn bad right it is pretty yeah. damn bad but uh, like also the appearance of it is difficult to reckon with so much so that when I talk about conspiracy theory, there was the anti-Jewish conspiracy, the anti-Semitic conspiracy. And then post Holocaust, 
you the anti-semitism had to also be paired with anti-nazism because the nazis were so bad that you had to both you were both hating jews and hating nazis at the same time and accusing your enemies of being nazis while also being it gets really weird because this is just so awful like this the holocaust for us right is the worst thing it is the worst thing we can imagine there are other genocides in human history but this one was just so brutal so Devi has to find some way to justify it. And this is what she does. She says Hitler's taking steps to bring about the end of time. And that's what this is. So there, the, the Indian Aryans are okay with the racism of the Hitlerarians as long as they're not racist against them? Like they get along. I don't. That's what I'm really confused about. I don't want to make it seem like there are a bunch of Nazi Indians. <laughs> this is a very small coterie of people, but I would say yes that they they see this all as of okay a piece. Yes, with the racism because it's not towards them. They believe that they are included. I don't think that Hitler weighed in on this question. Uh, so they're okay. projecting okay. onto him some right. things. Okay. Okay. Certain, so it's not like an agreement as it is like a projection. When I was in school, I was taught that Hitler's vision of the perfect man was, uh, and woman, you know, blonde, blue eyed kind of character. Yeah. Certainly not what we think of with the, the Brahmin class of the Indians. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I think you ask a good question, Nikki, but for Devi and company, they think that the Brahmin cast of the Indians is in in the club. Anyhow. Well, I guess it doesn't help that they both use the term Aryan. Yes, it yes. It certainly solves a substantial problem in Hitler's lexicon, mm-hmm. his use of the word Aryan. And uh, sundry other things related to it. The swastika as well is borrowed directly from Indian culture. Right. Yeah. So it makes, there's a sense, There's a, a, she's making some sense of things here. And I don't know enough about Hitler to say one way or the other how much of India he was on board with. Um, yeah, or what he even yeah, just cared my, or knew. My but... schoolboy understanding is that the blonde hair and the blue eyes were important yeah. to him. Yeah. Hitler wasn't Kalinda, though. I need to emphasize this. Remember Hitler 2.0. This is just Hitler 1.0. He is not the final incarnation of, incarnation of Vishnu. He's an avatar designed to prepare the way for Kalinda for the end. <sighs> Devi said, I'm going to quote Devi directly here. The fact that all Adolf Hitler's efforts to avoid war or to end it speedily and victoriously, at least honorably, remained fruitless proves by no means his inefficiency as a statesman or as a strategist. It only proves that the forces of disintegration, the coalesced forces of our dark age embodied in all-powerful international Jewry, were, in spite of his insight, in spite of his genius, too strong for him, that it needed a still harder man against time than he in order to break them. In other words, that he is not the last man against time. Sort of Monday morning quarterbacking the Nazis here. That was like the most disgusting way anyone has ever described Hitler. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know, man. I'm sure in his lifetime, people had even more. Oh, I know, but just the way he just goes to say. on and on about him. It just it. The whole time, it goes I was just beyond that like disgust. It's just like there's, and with any sort of figure like this, there's this this how do I put it? This like blind devotion to one thing about them that everything else is completely overlooked mm -hmm. in the sense that they will just keep justifying for their cause or their whatever as long as at the end of the day like they're trying to prove that they're correct well, in Debbie's case, though, she's embracing all the things we like least about Hitler that he murdered I know, bunches of people. I know, but the way she racist. talks is it, it's mimicking that sort of roundabout, like almost, um, uh, what you call it? Like apologist kind of attitude. Yeah, and almost like a bordering on like gaslighting. Like gaslighting us, who are like, yeah. this is nuts. Yeah. I mean, it, it, she's contending with multiple factors. I mean, we had, this is the same situation as the Holocaust. We, we have to bear in mind that the Holocaust is what, the worst thing in modern imagination we can picture mm -hmm. happening. And that Hitler lost. So she has to put all these pieces together to concoct a philosophy that Hitler was, in fact, serving the good and that it, his service of the good is not complete. It, it just baffles me to my core. I have to justify why it didn't go the way I guess she thought it was going to. He can't be the final avatar because he lost the war. Yeah. Uh, the final avatar would another. win the war. Yeah. Hitler, by the way, knew these things himself from the early days of the struggle. Nothing shows more clearly how aware he was of his own place and significance in history than the words he addressed to Hans Grimm in 1928 in the course of a conversation that lasted an hour and a quarter. He said to Hans Grimm, I know that some man capable of giving our problems a final solution must appear, and that is why I have set myself to do the preparatory work, uh, yeah. in German, die Vorarbeit, only the most urgent preparatory work, for I know that I am myself not the one, and I know also what is missing in me to be the one. But... The other one still remains aloof and nobody comes forward and there is no more time to be lost. So she's actually fairly faithful to Hitler's own view of himself. I don't like that. That makes me think they're like training it. F framing it? Framing Hitler's... No, training. Oh, training. little Hitler right now or something. I don't like the way that he's like, I'll be back, but in a different form. Mm -hmm. That's just well, like I got very eerie vibes from that. I well, like, like that. most of... I mean, the only way that he could justify what he was doing as a whole was that everybody who was driving the Holocaust at that time was not going to be the ones that were in the final perfect race. They were the ones paving the path. Like, he always made that very clear. Like, it was never like they were going to be the final standing group because they were going to have to go anyway because they themselves weren't perfect uh, to a degree. It would take some generations, right, to get to the... Yeah. The... It's like, this is not the first... This is not going to be the first round. Like, we're all... Oh. Everybody here is going to have to go before we're perfect. But, you know, I was nervous about doing this episode because I didn't want to advertise these views, but this in particular, I think, gives me some peace about at least doing the episode. We are learning 
that we should continue to be vigilant, that we should not just assume that the Holocaust was the worst thing that happened and now it's over and we're on the other side of the worst thing. We should remain vigilant of people who could do this again. You know? Of course. Yeah. I think we should hesitate to call people Hitler who don't have yeah. these things in mind. I think we should be very specific and and uh, accurate w- when we seek out people like this or when we seek out ideologies like this. Because it may not be a person. It may be many people or a computer program. Who knows? Um, but we shouldn't pretend like we're out of the weeds forever, you know? Especially because... when historically things kind of tend to circle. Sure. Well, like in in the case of everything that happened, everybody ignored it because they didn't think it was going to happen. And then when it was happening, you either were in denial about it or just didn't know about it. And it just kept feeding the fire. And, you know, the Holocaust itself was a kind of reiteration of the enslavement of African people, the genocide of Native people, mm-hmm. you know, the, all sorts of horrors of colonization in Africa, India, Australia. It's it wasn't the first time. No, and and like as bad as and as horrible and horrific as the Holocaust was and still is, like if that's another iteration of something else, we can only I can't even fathom how bad something would be if it were to be another iteration of that before it to happen. Like yeah. I can only I, I can't fathom yeah. how horrific it would be compared to things in the past because it would just keep ramping up because that's how these things go keep your eyes open i mean that's the thing keep your eyes open do not despair keep your eyes open yeah debbie retired from a career in teaching in 1970 spent nine months at the home of french socialite and neo-nazi francois dior uh niece of fashion designer christian dior before her habit of chewing garlic and not bathing prompted Dior to encourage Debbie to move back to India, where her pension would go much further. So the Dior name, by the way. FYI. She lived alone in New Delhi with her cats and her cobra, and corresponded with fellow neo-Nazis, including Miguel Serrano. She died in 1982 in Essex, England, on her way to a speaking tour in America. Her ashes were sent to the headquarters of the American Nazi Party in Arlington, Virginia, where they're kept beside those of party founder George Lincoln Rockwell. As we speak, Bree and I are within a drive. We could drive to see these this month. I don't think we can actually see it. I don't don't think we can have access to it, but Arlington, Virginia is not very far from where I'm at right now. Bit further drive for Nikki. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Miguel Serrano, who I just mentioned. The other, I would say, major pillar in the development of neo-Nazi occultism. Had a great deal in common with Devi's Hindu occult Hitlerism. He was born on the 10th of September 1917 in Chile. His mother died when he was five and his father when he was eight, and he was raised by his paternal grandmother. He studied with Prussian teachers at the Internando Nacional Baros Arana, uh, to whom he attributed his affection for all things German. So in Chile, he was taught by Germans. But initially, he was put off by the Nazis when the Nazi-inspired Nazistas murdered his friend, the social poet Hector Barreto. So the Nazistas, kind of like a Chileification of the word of Nazi. Nazista. 
Serrano became an avowed Marxist. So this is very odd. Because um, huh. the Marxist. Said Mark- Wait, hold on. Yes. <laughs> did you say he became a Marxist? Yes, he did. He s- severely anti-Nazi, joined the Marxists, who are the epitome of anti-Nazi. Um, his uncle encouraged him to fight on the side of the socialists in the Spanish Civil War, but Serrano was already starting to develop fascist sympathies, even as he was walking around as a Marxist. Oh, well, that okay. went downhill Strange. very fast. He'd become disillusioned with the Marxist ties to Russian communists and to the American CIA, and decided uh-huh. to join up with the Nazistas. So this was back in the day when the Russians and the Americans got together on certain projects. The Chilean Nazi Party was founded by Jorge González von Marais, known as El Jefe, in 1932. Marais called for one-party rule, but gradually distanced himself from Hitler and his anti-Semitism, which didn't play so well in South America. So the anti-Jew line did not go well in Chile. In 1938, the Nazistas attempted to overthrow the government and surrendered when the coup failed. But the government, for its part, shot all 60 participants in what came to be called the Seguro Obrero Massacre, uh, named after the office building that the Nazi Nazistas had occupied. These executed youth became martyrs and inspired Serrano to join their cause, which was renamed the Vanguarda Popular Socialista, to further distance the Chilean movement from the Nazis. So, a very weird story of Nazism in in Chile. Yeah. It shows you how far reaching it is in ways you wouldn't really expect. Yeah. Yeah, the ideology was by no means limited to Germany. I mean, of course not. It spread throughout Europe, but yeah, even in such far outposts as Chile, they were like, oh yeah, we see some point to this fascism. I mean, fascism was in uh, going around, right? There were m- m- many fascist countries at, the, at that time period fighting on the a- Axis side, but um, yeah, the Chileans had their own, own Nazis, and, and the massacre of those 60 kids, you're like, oh man, you feel a little bad for the Nazis there, but up only because they're kids they you know yeah. they didn't really know any better i suppose they, they made a ill-advised decision um yeah but you know the, that martyrdom i mean just that mart- martyrdom is inspirational it inspires people yeah, and it inspired absolutely. serrano in autumn 1941, Serrano read the false and fabricated protocols of the elders of Zion and was quickly converted to belief in a global Jewish conspiracy. He wrote that while he was aware that the protocols were forgeries, he believed that they were nevertheless based in truth. It was a common thing. That's convenient. That's really convenient. Yeah, and this is how a lot of people read the protocols, because they were so thoroughly debunked, as we said in our episode on the protocols. They were so thoroughly debunked in the, uh, not very long after they were published, Um, certainly as they were coming into the United States and being translated, I think it was the New York Times published an expose basically saying this is utter nonsense. Um, But people really wanted to believe and so they said, okay, fine, the protocols are forgeries, but they are forgeries that reflect a deeper truth. This is what Serrano want, chose to believe. Interpreting the protocols through a Gnostic lens, by the way, Serrano described the Jewish conspiracy as a kind of evil demiurge ruling over creation. 
through means of yoga meditation, a believer in Serrano's brand of Nazi occultism could connect with their astral body, rising above the corruptions and misunderstanding wrought by the conspiracy, draw up the serpent or kundalini power from the base of the spine, and awaken the superconscious ego with its fascist will to power. Oh. Again, we're seeing this blend of Indian and Nazi thought. Albeit now in a Chilean man. Mm. Yeah. Wildly international and multicultural, this view. A lot going on with that, yeah. A multicultural fascist view. The SS had practiced some version of this, by the way, at Himmler's Wellwellsburg Castle to restore the memory of their Aryan blood and render themselves godmen. Serrano believed that Hitler was a master of this craft, being a bodhisattva incarnated on Earth to help rescue Aryan humanity from the Kali Yuga Dark Age. Lots of Savitri Devi bleeding through here. Hitler had not committed suicide, by the way, in his bunker when he realized the Germans had been defeated. He had been spirited away on a U-boat either to a warm oasis in Queen Maud land in Antarctica or was living under an ice cap there. Strange as this idea sounds, it was a rumor picked up and reported on by the Latin American press in 1945 and was by no means unique to Serrano, so he didn't make that part up himself. Someone else made it up, and he picked it up. No. Queen Maudland in Antarctica, yeah, living gonna... under the ice. No. <laughs> Serrano traveled to Europe, and like I'm saying, uh, Antarctica, ice, like all these things have uh, deep Nazi resonance. Theme, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Although, albeit now we're at the South Pole rather than the North Pole. Serrano traveled to Europe and, like Devi, visited prominent Nazi sites, including Hitler's Berlin bunker and the Spandau prison, where Rudolf Hess and other high-ranking Nazis were kept. And one imagines they played exclusively Spandau ballet music. Anyone? 80s? 80s? 80s rock? Anyone? I'm so sorry. No. Fair enough. I know a lot of 80s rock, but that one's not You don't know Spandau ballet? All right. He also stopped by. I'm so sorry. It's okay. It's okay. You can go go afterwards. You can pull it up on your Spotify. Okay. He also stopped by Switzerland, where he met and befriended not one but two intellectual luminaries. Now this is Serrano. Remember all the things he believes. He got to hang out with Hermann Hess, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1946. You may be familiar with his book Siddhartha. He also got to hang out with Carl Jung. Carl Jung, that's right. Weird, okay. (laughs) Who discussed myths and archetypes with him. In 1953, he joined the Chilean diplomatic corps and received a posting in India, according to his request, where he remained until 1962. After all, a lot of his ideology has its roots in India and in yogic philosophy. In India, he met Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, also Indira Gandhi, and the 14th Dalai Lama. There's that Dalai Lama again. Everyone's Always with the Dalai, the Dalai Lama. Lama. Oh, yeah, Dalai Lama, he's met... See, now I'm just jealous. He's met uh, the Nexium founder. He's met... What, what would you what would say, Bree? The uh, um, he Shinrikyo? He met Shoka Asahara. Yeah, Asahara, mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And now he's, he's met Serrano. 
he gets her, that Dalai Lama. I don't know. I'm developing a conspiracy theory of I, my own. It, it's it's popping up a little bit too much. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, We're just gonna take concerned. notes. We're gonna take notes every. We're time. starting to worry so for the Dalai, the Dalai Lama. Lama. Yeah. I'm concerned about them. Who's in charge of this man's schedule? After serving, right? Like he's never in the right place. After serving in Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, Romania, and Austria, he was dismissed by Marxist Chilean President Salvador Allende in 1970 and decided to live in exile, returning to his study of esoteric Nazism. He wrote, following Devi, that Hitler had been an avatar of Vishnu, and I'll quote Serrano here. For me, Esoteric Hitlerism is being possessed by the archetype of the collective unconscious, which the Greeks used to call gods. Among them, Apollo, which is really Wotan for the Germans, uh, and Vishnu, or Shiva, for the Hindus. So, all these gods. And its development in the individual and collective souls of the actual Hitlerist warriors. That means a new old religion with all of its rituals and myths which are necessary to discover or rediscover. Its central drama is the apparition on this earth of the person Adolf Hitler, the last avatar, who came to produce this enormous storm or catastrophe in order to awaken all those who are asleep and to commence the new age, which will come after the deluge. That is the reason why we have started to count the years of this new age, beginning with the birth of Hitler. So I guess he had his own calendar. Yeah, I was like, we what now? I... Do not. Guess <laughs> you don't do right. that, Nikki? Uh, no. I no. guess Serrano must be living in the year like three or four. <laughs> so that that's probably confusing when he writes checks out to people. He has a whole calendar shop and no one else is buying them. <laughs> right, yeah. No one's accepting any of his checks because they're all made out for June 1st, the year four. <laughs> B-H. Yeah, but <laughs> before. Or A-H. It's, yeah, it's after. Ah. And no Hitler. <laughs> the gods, he said, possess the power of the third eye and of Vril. That's V-R-I-L, which is a term you may be familiar with from our episode about Edward Bulwer-Lytton, uh, who had absolutely nothing to do with any of this and remains a pretty cool guy in my opinion. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> the gods exist at a remote location in our galaxy illuminated by the black sun which is invisible from Earth. These gods are the divine ancestors of our Aryan race, also known as the Hyperboreans. Now, the Black Sun, by the way, is a kind of theosophical idea. Uh, people like Emma Harding Britton, for example, talked about there being a spiritual sun. She didn't call it a Black Sun. That's <laughs> a little too metal. Um, but that yeah, there was honestly. a spiritual sun was, and a regular I was sun. Say a black sun just makes it sound like someone saw a solar eclipse, and they were like, "The sun's been replaced with a black sun." Yeah, won't you come? Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, I got that one, Rob. <laughs> so right there, yeah. yeah, there it is. We're with you on that. That's one. not Spandau Ballet. A demiurge <laughs> had corrupted the world by making a lower form of beast men, and the gods created the caste system to contain these inferior beast men and women but the hyperboreans mated with the daughters of the beast men because they were super hot beast women forming a hybrid creature uh the earth's second moon fell a flood followed and hyperborea home of the hyperboreans vanished into the hollow earth today only the aryans preserve the memory of their hyperborean origins and only their blood contains a lingering spark from the black sun 
The Jews are imposters in Serrano's universe, masquerading as the chosen people with their religion of Jehovah, when in fact it is the Aryans who are the true descendants of the gods. The Jews have sought to corrupt the Aryan at every turn, particularly in the mulatto and mestizo culture of the Americas. After all, this is Serrano, he's Chilean. The only remaining pure homes for the white gods exist in the secret cities of the Andes Mountains. Also, (laughs) yes, secret cities. Also underground and in Antarctica, where, for those of you who've forgotten, Hitler is still alive. In that Arctic ice. I mean, he'd probably be dead by now, but he kept living until like 1989 or something. He got to see both Ghostbusters movies. I'm not an expert on like, Greek mythology, but that whole like gods making these beast men and women, but then they're so sexy they have to mate with them anyway, and then you get this different corrupt. Like, am I completely off base? That's kind of like Greek mythology. It's a little Clash of the Titans kind of thing. Is that what you mean? The war with the gut between the gods and the Titans? Well, and also the way that like there was gods and then there were people but then you get demigods because the gods couldn't keep it in their pants oh yeah 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 they couldn't keep it in their pants with anything right but the, it's book the, of enoch you know it's genesis yeah. i mean it's it's mixed up in in our western traditions as well i mean i guess the greeks are our tradition too but you know what the, the judeo-christian tradition has this idea that there is some miscegenation that took place um the seedbed theory that Eve actually cheated on Adam, and that's where we get different races. There's always some kind of a, like, uh, people sleeping with people they shouldn't be, and now we have a yes. new people. Yeah, the wrong people. Mm-hmm. These are the right people, these are the wrong people. Yikes. Serrano says uh, that Hitler must have traveled back to the Black Sun in a UFO years ago. Let me say that one more oh, time, because... This is, in case anyone at all listening to this was like, yeah, this makes sense. Hitler must have traveled back to the Black Sun in a UFO that's unidentified flying object that even Hitler himself couldn't identify years ago. You know, I didn't think I could sigh any more than I have in this episode already, but I did again. And then again, when you repeated it. That's, you don't make that metal yeah. sound anymore. You just sigh. I just sigh because everything's <laughs> sad. I, <laughs> I'm a little give bit hurt. Give us a sad little like... I'll, maybe <laughs> give me something metal and I might. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It just gets worse and worse. Ugh. The Nazis should not lose hope because... The defeat of the, I wish they would. The, the defeat of the Third Reich is only temporary, and as we speak, the Nazis and the Hyperboreans are laboring under the ice caps of Antarctica on their plan for a global resurgence. Well, thank God those are going to melt in a few years. I was going to say, I literally had that terrifying thought. I was like, they're all melting. <laughs> what are we going to do? They're going to emerge out of the... Just be a bunch of Nazis in their underwear working on bombs. (laughs) It's melting fast, though, so they they better pick up the pace. They don't have much time. The ice melts and we see a naked Nikki in Canada podcasting and down at the (laughs) South Pole, we see a bunch of Nazis in their underwear tinkering away. 
Go, oh no, they caught us. <laughs> we weren't supposed to be thawed yet. <laughs> what is this, global warming? <laughs> yeah, well, who invented this? Also, I guess that's the upshot of global warming. We'll catch the Nazis before they can finish. <laughs> we'll catch the Nazis. <laughs> before they can thaw. Go desecration of our planet. <laughs> we found the silver lining. Good job, ladies. Good job today. Oh, my God. I'm here to keep it light. Serrano, okay? oh Serrano died of a stroke in Santiago in 2009. 2009. Oh, my God. I was not expecting you to say 2000 and anything. Yeah. But not before his work would have a widespread and lasting influence on racist paganism, especially <sighs> in the U.S. Oh, I'm not ready for it. Well, you know, like survivors of the Holocaust and uh, World War II soldiers, they're, they're some I think they're just dying now, they're the last of, of those mm -hmm. folks. So mm -hmm. he would have been basically of that generation. Votensfolk is how we're going to close today. In the 1990s, the far-right pagan Votensfolk group procured the rights to translate and publish Miguel Serrano's work through their 14-word press. All right, so this brings us pretty much to the present day. Elsa Christensen is the founder of the Odinist Fellowship, and she's perhaps most responsible for developing what we can call racial paganism. For Christensen, Norse paganism... I know, Brie. I knew the size were going to... They couldn't end, because we got to um. get to these folks. Leave my runes alone. I just... <laughs> For Christensen, Norse paganism is a variant of paganism, by the way, revolving around the Norse pantheon of gods. As listeners know, Bree has, has discussed it with us many times. Norse paganism was the ideal for achieving racial unification among white people. Drawing on Carl Jung, there he is again, Christensen says that the power of the Aryan gods is passed genetically and exists as unconscious archetypes in white people's collective unconscious. She uh -huh. argues for tribal socialism, in which members of a tribe or small community would subjugate their personal needs to those of the tribe. The Norse paganism is their ideal. I, I'm... <laughs> there's no... Ah, okay. <laughs> this could... Keep going, Rob. <laughs> Our tribe can only function... I mean, again, you can take some of these ideas, and if you just take out the racist parts, yeah, all right, then it sounds like something we might debate as a good idea, but because it's just got to be white people. This could only function in a racially homogenous group, says Christensen. So here's the reason. Because no member of one race would naturally desire to assist a member of another race. I... Goes against our nature, she says. Oh, I didn't yeah. think I could get angrier. That was oh, obviously gonna... just written by a racist. Give yourself some space, um, Brie, to get angry. Because I... <laughs> we're God. not done by any stretch. Do you need stretch. to get a pillow to, like, yell I... into? Yeah, don't yell I'm into so the mic. I'm so glad. Do you have I a stress know ball? My gods aren't... My gods would smite these... I almost cursed very profusely my gods would smite these horrible horrible individuals in an instant in my belief in my belief of my beliefs so they can get smited they can take their stupid self-righteous racism and shove it so far up their asses that they puke out their appropriation that they have done the goal is not racial supremacy but separatism 
It's still bad. <laughs> I, I hate it. I wasn't saying that as an excuse. It was just the next thing I had I to say. I knew it, but still, I'm like, <laughs> I, you're, I'm getting, I'm gonna hit like, I just. That wasn't at you, Rob. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, so separatism, I do want to say we should bear in mind, separatism is not uncommon among group, different groups. Um, the Black Power Movement, uh, the Nation of Islam, had separatist beliefs. Um, so this is very much similar to that. And we're going to do Nation of Islam. We're going to talk about Malcolm X. There's an episode on Malcolm X coming up in this very series. Um, so... We're not letting them off the hook, but separatism rather than supremacy. Supremacy implies a quest for global domination, which necessarily involves intermixing with other races and mongrelization. Better for the Odinists to keep to their own tribe and live and let live. Echoes of Devi and Serrano can be heard in Christensen's quest for a purified bloodline and interest in forgotten archetypes. So in in some ways, if we had to com- compare Christensen with Hitler, Christensen is saying we don't want to conquer the world. That's not a good idea, for racist reasons. But still, no desire to exterminate the other races, just to get the hell away from them. So close to a decent point, and then you yeah gotta be racist about it. Among racists, it's like a <laughs> it's like a slightly better racism. I don't know. <laughs> at least you're not exterminating anyone we can say that yeah oh my god the bar needs to be dug up from the tomb it's meditating in <laughs> it's yeah it's really bar. at like that bar is so deep beneath the ice the nazis don't even know where it's at like that's that's real but Voten's folk would take these themes a step further. So when I'm talking about Christensen, I'm not actually talking about Voten's folk. I'm talking about the precursor. She is the precursor to Voten's folk, the sort of the godmother of um, racial Norse paganism. So Voten's folk was co-founded actually by David Lane, his wife Katya Lane, and Ron McVan. Lane was a member of Robert J. Matthews' Silent Brotherhood, or also known as The Order, and he drove the getaway car when Matthews' group murdered talk radio host Alan Berg in June 1984. Uh, well, I was going to say it's always good when a group needs a getaway driver. That's always a good sign. Well, I mean, don't we have a getaway driver? Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> we need one because I don't no think me here I either. We don't drive. <laughs> <laughs> You definitely need a getaway driver. Um, th- th- this, by the way, there's a movie uh, called Talk Radio uh, about this event, hmm. which I oh. recommend. It's a pretty good movie. Lane had uh, a serial killer's early childhood. That's <laughs> a how rough I'm characterizing beginning it. statement, but okay. His father was an alcoholic, and Lane said he prostituted his mother to pay for his addiction. <sighs> Uh, Lane entered the foster care system and was adopted by a fundamentalist Lutheran minister, separating him from his sister, which was common uh, back at that time period. Uh, the minister's sermons ultimately turned Lane to paganism. All right. <laughs> so I, I guess they weren't very persuasive. That was a little bit too overbearing. As an adult, Lane was an aspiring golf professional and real estate agent whose license was revoked for... Not selling homes in white neighborhoods to black people. So that's kind of a win for the real estate Good people. Good on you, they, real uh, estate people. Yeah. They caught that, yeah. 
His career with the alt-right started with the John Birch Society before he became an organizer for the Ku Klux Klan, and then... Well, there's always overlap. And then finally joined the Aryan Nations in 1981. He met Matthews uh, at the Aryan Nations uh, World Congress in 83, and following his involvement in the murder of the talk radio host Berg, he was sentenced to 190 years in prison for conspiracy, racketeering, and violating Berg's civil rights. Mm-hmm. He died in 2007 at the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute, Indiana. So you might be wondering, Rob, when did he found a pagan racist group? That is exactly what I was wondering, Rob. <laughs> From prison. Oh. He became the philosopher of this movement, namely... Votensvolk. He coined the 14 words, a popular white separatist slogan. The 14 words are, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. He also coined the second 14 words in case the first 14 words were not enough words for you. Because... The beauty of the white Aryan woman must not perish from the earth. I hate that more than the first 14 words. Yeah, ew, it got worse. It's very paternalistic. Gross. I mean, racist, but also paternalistic. I I think it, it perfectly captures so much of what this is all about though I, I, <laughs> I feel like I'm always looking for the silver lining for these guys but I think that sometimes we kid ourselves when we think about the KKK and the Aryan Nations and these groups that it doesn't have a paternalistic link to sexual themes um, but it almost always does I think yeah. that that burbles under the surface you know, that, that classic birth of a nation, protect the white woman ideology oh. is always, always there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how you get white babies. But protecting the white woman. Yeah. Lane believed in a, by the way, white babies are fine. I have my babies. Uh, Everybody's, yeah, your babies are fine. Just, I don't know. Maybe leave the just white like, woman so alone. Are all other babies. Like, don't yeah. make her your scapegoat um, or her children. Let them ladies yeah. pick whoever they want to make babies with. Exactly. And their babies can be whatever those babies are going to be. Exactly right. Uh, Lane, prisoner Lane, believed in a platonic order ruled by philosophers practicing an esoteric mysticism and upheld by a warrior caste committed to a program of racial separatism. A little bit platonic. Drawing on theosophy, he says that the Odinist philosophers would be guided by a disembodied, immortal Aryan elite called the Watchers. <laughs> so I, I, I gotta say again. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. The cause... Watchers. It's sort of like the uh, adepts, uh, Blavatsky's adepts. But I, I just, I feel like if anybody here plays video games or anything like that, it's super nerdy. And my first thought is that it's just there's this series of games called Dark Souls, and it's very like oh, yeah. medieval nighty. And course. one of the the bosses in the first game are the Abyss Watchers. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Well, here they like, are. <laughs> anytime I hear the Watchers and it's in something ridiculous like that, that's my first thought. And I'm like, Watchers really? of the Abyss. Um, 
Blavatsky was not racist. Blavatsky was not racist. Blavatsky was not racist. I can't say that enough. It is a misreading of theosophical texts to uh, interpret her as racist. However, she was appropriated. And you can't do anything about that. Somebody could take this episode and clip out five words that I say and, you know, oh, global warming is good. Oh, Rob says global warming is <laughs> they good. They could literally take out all of our sarcasm and we'd be like, <laughs> no, yeah, mistake. yeah. You, you can take, you. yes, you can appropriate other people's stuff out of context if that's your desire. Um, Absolutely. And so that's not Blavatsky's fault. Anyhow, despite his earlier association with the Aryan nations and Christian identity, uh, which is a group we will discuss with our clan Christianity episode as well, Lane came to believe that Christianity, with its self-denying, turn-the-other-cheek ethos, had to be abandoned in favor of an Odinism based on war, plunder, and sex. Despite... (laughs) What what is it with men? I don't know. (laughs) It's always a guy. It's always like, hmm. His wife. It should change things up so it would be like, yeah, war, uh, uh, money, uh, sex, sex. I just want sex. That's actually what I want out of that. I want to yeah, be an angry, rich two, man who has fine. sex with whatever He's he just wants. first, though, Brie. His <laughs> wife will be next. And remember, Elsa Christensen was a woman who got this all started. Oh, I keep forgetting a woman did this. <laughs> oh, not to mention Savitri Devi. Okay, so... So many women, Des- why? Despite the inherent corruption of Judaism and Christianity, says Lane, the Bible contained hidden Aryan truths that could be decoded with the key of David... This key revealed to Lane that humanity was living in the apocalyptic era of the Antichrist or the overtaking of the world by a Zionist elite. Rather than despair, Aryan man should rise up against his this uh, fullness of evil. This sounds like the worst superhero ever. Yeah, Aryan man. Aryan man will rise up. It's, and yeah, it's, def- it's a rough one. <laughs> he wears all white. He is white. It just looks like a piece of paper. <laughs> you can't see the letter A because it's also white. Uh, the fullness of evil to usher in the new Odinist paradise. So it's, there's a millenarian mindset here that, you know, the world is ending. And, and so Aryan man will bring us to paradise. His wife, Katya, was largely responsible for disseminating his teaching and maintaining an international Votensvolk organization, largely through the Internet and a prison outreach program. Remember, they got started in the 90s, as did the Internet. I mean, as a public thing, right? Uh, you know, commercial enterprise. Yeah. Katya married David in 1994, the same year she divorced her husband and several years after he'd been incarcerated. So she married him in prison. The prison program has been particularly successful, has established 300 kindreds or Odinist collectives throughout the United States with Votensfolk represented at prisons in every, every state. No. What? The Church of Votan was officially recognized by the United States Tax Authority as a religion in 2000. Voltensfolk exists in 41 countries and has been perhaps best received in Sweden, where Norse heritage maintains a pride of place and Christianity has always struggled to maintain dominance in the face of widespread pagan belief. Okay, that that sentence alone is infuriated me. If you're if you have a heritage of like traditional Norse pagan belief and this is what you choose to believe. I'm sorry, but 
off. I I'm so mad about it's that. It's a cloudy glass, right, that you put on top of that underlying belief system. To you might as well it. have like black paper taped inside of the glass, <laughs> so you can't actually see the belief system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ron McVam, <laughs> the third co-founder of Votensvolk, is an artist and an author who had originally been affiliated with the World Church of the Creator, which preaches a racial holy war between the white and non-white races. Votensvolk, by contrast, advocated for separatism on the lines of what Christensen and Butler envisioned. McVan was largely responsible for crafting Votan rituals and ceremonies. These ceremonies, by the way, are designed to bring the Aryan archetypes hidden within the white psyche to full consciousness. These archetypes are also the Aryan gods, conceived of as the more powerful kin of the Aryan man and woman. Aryan humanity fell from spiritual truth when they adopted Christianity, which has since led to a long period of degeneration, from which Votan's folk believers seek to recover. Regular rituals include gatherings or blots, rites of passage, and magical warfare. All topics we've discussed in one way or another in different episodes. So there's a lot of occultism in this. It, it, yeah. We just don't like the end that it's being put to. But just also so much racism. Right, yeah. I guess we're not off the hook. I, I We're also not off the hook. Occulty people, like, we think we're cool, and we are cool. Don't get me wrong, but we're not off the hook. We have these people, too. You know, it's not just the Christians... It's not just the, you know, Muslims. It's not just, you know, these, these world Racists religions. Everywhere. Yeah, what we they're in every group, in every belief system. That's bleak. That's really bleak. Norse magic entails efforts to increase the magician's strength, safety, or courage to attain sex, uh, success in work, life, or love, uh, to see into the future or other dimensions and rites of scorn, which can be used to conduct, uh, which can be conducted communally to summon the wrath of the gods against enemies. Any of this sound familiar, Brie? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. That brings us to the present day, by the way. Uh, I'm saving ONA uh, as an episode extension for our patrons. So again, as I said at the beginning, be sure and sign on for any dollar amount to hear that. Uh, so let me conclude now with Rob's take on this stuff, me being said Rob. Religion at its best expresses an ideal for us to strive toward, a destination for the soul. These religions that we've been discussing today are occupied by small groups of people, but, but what if, as Sartre suggested, we imagine them legislating for all humankind? What if we were all engaged in a constant battle for racial superiority, tribe against tribe, and personal supremacy as the best and the strongest. Would we be happier in such a world? Would we sleep better? Would our wives and girlfriends, husbands and boyfriends, love us more? Or would our every waking hour be a nightmare of dread and horror? We teach our children to cooperate and share, not because we want them to be weak, but because we want them to be strong. Weakness is petulantly demanding to have our way regardless of who it hurts, because we believe we're better. Strength means learning to live with other people and make a life that allows them to live their lives, sharing the things we both desire, because that's much less painful than fighting over it day in and day out 
for the whole of our miserable existence. Final thoughts, Bri and Nikki. I, you know, when symbols and and beliefs and gods are taken and used for such a negative purpose and with such a negative backing, it puts a very dark light on the people who love and and support and worship these things on their own, but for all the right reasons with all of the the, the positive and, and good things behind it. Because then people who don't have any connection to either side of this, when you're walking down the street, they'll look at you and they'll judge you. Because like, for instance, I straight up have Norse tattoos and I'm afraid that one day somebody is going to say something horrible to me because they think that I adhere to this dumb shit. Like, that's something that I'm always afraid of. And, like, you know, I, I take back my FU to the people that, you know, have these traditional beliefs and they might be racist about it. I, I take back the FU. That was a little strong. But I still don't support that. Like, I, I can't get with that. I can't understand that. I never want to understand that. But to me, it's a level of hurting people. Even if you're not physically causing people harm, you're hurting people with that belief. And then you're hurting people that you don't even know with that belief. Like people that might have the same, you know, pagan beliefs just on an opposite spectrum, but you're putting this negative light on those beliefs that are going to hurt them. And it's just kind of like, what, what's the point? I don't, I don't get it. I don't know. It pisses me off. Yeah. Yeah. They're courting controversy intentionally. For sure. They, they know, they know these things are not going to be well received except by the people with whom they are well-received. Nikki? Uh, just don't be racist. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> just, yeah, you know, Nikki. <laughs> you know, I, uh, do what you gotta do, meditate in a tomb. You can come out yelling all God's names, but don't you dare include Hitler. He's <laughs> not an idol. Certainly shouldn't yeah. be. Uh, all right. Let's let's get out of here. Um, I, any members? I hereby, no. I hereby. That's <laughs> the back. Um, I hereby declare. Yeah, I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting. Of who are we? Thou chemical actors until such a time as we can do it all again. I'm so stressed out and sad. I'm sorry. I was bad. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. I understand. Our sources today included Matthias uh, Gardell's Gods of the Blood, Pagan Revival, and White Separatism, Nicholas Goodrick Clark's Black Sun, Aryan Cults, Esoteric Nazism, and the Politics of Identity, also counterextremism.com. Uh, an esoteric Hitlerism, an interview with Miguel Serrano, and Savitri Devi's uh, The Last Man Against Time from The Lightning and the Sun. Um, a reminder that uh, join us on Patreon for the uh, extension on this episode, which is a discussion of ONA. And join us next time, uh, where I, I am going to go ahead and do clan Christianity. I think it makes sense to do these together. Uh, so let's do it. Let's Let's discuss clan Christianity. Uh, Bree, 
<laughs> Nikki, you are off the hook. I will find someone else to subject Thank you to so this. Much. Um, but but let's have the full conversation and, and really get it all out out and, and done with. All right. Uh, my name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson. Joined this day uh, by Bree Literal, our metallurgic prophet. Bye, guys. And uh, Nikki Henderson and our naked truth. Bye. Thanks for joining us. I hope you learned something here on Occult Confessions.